Welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lila Bolin, and hope you enjoy this edition of Bolin's Alley. You can find out more about us at alleninvestments.com. Well, depending on when you're getting a chance to hear this, you might be somewhat aware of banking issues, maybe something like a financial bubble that might have taken place, certain sort of panic that hits the market on occasion. And you know, one of the things about this is financial bubbles happen over and over and over throughout time. So no matter when you hear this, I want you to start to think about how the history of financial bubbles occur. We're going to talk about that a little bit. I want to get your questions that you have about that. And then I'm going to relate that to how, how we think as people, how we behave, can sort of explain why they happen over and over. And different things about how you think about investing, life decisions, business decisions, career decisions, all relates back to these sort of loops that we can tie back together to these bubbles. There's really been four main banking crises. Okay. Okay? Yep. And if we go back to the early 1980s, which I do remember. Uh, I, we, we both remember okay, the we were, 1980s. Okay. But you had a time when Mexico and Brazil and Argentina and other developing countries actually defaulted on $800 billion of dollar-denominated loans. Now, that was obviously a fairly significant crisis. Now, what's interesting is I happen to have a friend of mine who at the time was the chief economist for one of the main money center banks in New York. And so this is like 20 years later, he's telling me about this crisis. And, and, and so I'm asking him, you know, he, he was in finance and he was, an, you know, he basically was an economist. And I said, you were in the bank. Why did you, why were you making these loans at, they were such high risk. And he said, well, what you have to understand at this point in time, the Fed and the Treasury basically told them they, the largest money center banks, they would make these loans. <laughs> There wasn't a, let's, let's see if this looks profitable or not. It was more, no, we're trying to get these countries propped up. We're trying to help them develop. They may default. They may not. They probably will. We don't care. You're going to give them the money. And so a lot of times you'll see a crisis that wouldn't have had to happen if people were really following sound business decisions. But there's other things going on that might be at risk of breaking in an economy that drives these decisions. So essentially what you're talking about today is going to be kind of some of the politics that are also included Absolutely. in banking and how that impacts Absolutely. economy. Okay. Because you really have an international banking system. Without Even, having an international banking system. Without well, as having, long as the United States is involved, right. there is an international banking system, Almost correct? by definition. Yes, okay. So that was kind of the first one that happened in the 1980s. And then in the early 1990s, now we have kind of a Scandinavian one that kicked in. Same sort of thing, easy money, everybody got over exuberant, pumped their money in. Japan went through the same sort of thing at that period of time. And we had another cycle of panic, bubble, break, start over. Okay, 1990s. Then 
1997, we had the Asian financial crisis. You know, it's just sort of moving around the world, right? It, do, it does seem to be creating a familiar path there. Yeah, we got South American in 1980, 81, 82. Okay, let's jump across the Atlantic and let's go into the Scandinavian countries. You know, now we're, we're in a little later on. And now by 1997, we've made it all the way over to Asia. Okay. And that one was a big one. And so the same, sort of, same type of reactions in the banking industry, making loans you probably shouldn't have made. Uh, you take the easy money, you put it in the stock market. That pushes stock market prices go up. And then all of a sudden it became too hard to sustain. Something breaks and you end up breaking a bubble again. So what I'm hearing is there's a cycle. Yes. Okay. And it doesn't matter where you live in the world. No. The cycle is the cycle. Because human nature drives this behavior. I got it. Okay. I'm anxious to hear what you want to talk about that because that's where we're ultimately going. We are going to end up there Terrific. eventually. So again, then, I'm, if, if you've been around a few more years now, and we're going to go all the way up to 2007, we had the, the great financial crisis. Clearly remember that one. Okay. Well, do you remember what, what triggered that one? Um, now, I, you're, you're putting me on the spot. Well, of course was I that, am. Um, that was the, the loans, the bundled loans for um, homes. Right. It, right. And wasn't that on the tail of the dot com? Yeah, you had the dot com. I mean, that was all kind of happening about the same time, It, it all it? sort of carried on. Mm -hmm. So the dot com happened in the early 2000s. Right. And then you then sort of went into where all of a sudden we were trying to have all these real estate prices were going way up. And they wanted to make more and more loans, and so they started lowering their standards, and, and people were doing short-term flipping instead of long-term buying a house to mm -hmm. live in. You were buying a house on the hope that you could flip it and make more money. You weren't really planning necessarily, a lot of people, to live in them. Right. Well, part of the problem that happens in these bubbles is you'll end up with short-term traders that have short-term goals that will now kind of yank along long-term investors that really may have wanted to buy a house long-term, mm -hmm. but now the price they're having to pay is based on what these short-term traders are doing. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like a virus. It starts with the short-term that have short-term reasons that don't really want to be in the house. They're using that to flip to make a quick profit. Well, anybody that wants to buy a house long-term at that point now is having to pay an inflated price. Well, they're competing with uh, an artificial artificial buyers, exactly. I guess, is a bad definition. But exactly. Essentially, that's what And so are. that pumps prices up to where they eventually can't be sustained. And once it starts to break, the whole thing collapsed. Again, something broke along the way that forced that crisis. There's, there's that same cycle. There's always going to be some sort of trigger that's going to break the bubble Every time it's different. It's been caused by, in that case, a real estate bubble. It's been caused by currency changes when currencies collapse for whatever reason. Like when Argentina or Mexico decides to default, their currency basically gets destroyed because now it's not worth anything. You have loan defaults. And now we have credit risk or what's called duration interest rate risk that's happened here recently. So... Why the heck did banks lose so much money so quickly this time? I mean, this whole thing in the financial crisis took months and months, almost 18 months to go from start to finish. This one happened in two weeks. 
Well, everything is escalated in life now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Can we blame this on technology too? Sure, why not? Okay. I think that's, I, I like that. <laughs> well, if you think about it, and not that you would have thought about this, but one of the things I was watching is that, and I'll get into a little more detail here in a minute. I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but one of the things that banks had started to do with interest rates so low next to zero for the last 10 or 12 years is to make any money at all they would invest the cash they held in long-term treasury securities or mortgage-backed securities, 10, 20, 30-year maturity. So they could get at least some interest rate, maybe 3% instead of zero. Well, the problem is, is when in bonds, when prices go up, that means the yield has gone down. And when yields go up, which is what happened last year, bond bond prices prices go go down. down. Mm -hmm. So now at the end of 2021, banks in the U.S. that were carrying all these longer-term securities actually had, on paper, an $8 billion loss. Now, they don't have to report that loss because as long as they're planning to hold that treasury until it matures, they get their money back. So there really isn't any risk in holding it Mm -hmm. as long as they don't have to sell it. Because it's a U.S.-backed treasury. Mm -hmm. And accounting rules allow them to carry that at par. However... If they have to sell them, then they have to show the loss because now they've sold it at a loss and, you know, you lost money, you lost money. Well, as interest rates went up so fast in in 2022, that $8 billion ended up paper losses at the end of last year at $620 billion. So these banks were carrying a huge amount of loss on paper. Now, as long as people don't try to pull their money out, it's not a big problem. But when they do, we have a problem. We have to sell something. We have to sell something. To be able to give people their money. Exactly. And you know, after this break, we'll talk about what actually did break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Beyond Dollars and Cents in Boland's Alley. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Boland. And we were just talking about the break in the market because of all these paper losses. And so what happened was in the case of a couple of the the banks that had done a lot of work with tech companies, startup companies, is all of a sudden a lot of them started pulling their money out. And they didn't have enough capital because the write-downs got so big that basically the amount of capital that they supposedly had now evaporated. And so now banks that had, let's say, deposits that weren't guaranteed by the FDIC above and beyond that 250000 people felt a little panicky, or companies that may have used that for payroll felt a little panicky that they wouldn't be covered, and they started, and that started a bank run. So let me ask you a question just for my clarity. These startups and tech companies, because of overall market conditions, not necessarily what was happening at this specific bank, because... Most companies, I, I mean, don't necessarily know where all of that their investments are, where the bank's investments are. When people get sensitive about market conditions and they hear recession enough times, then responsible are, are going to start to kind of pull some of that money out to make sure that they are safe on the other side if they have staffs, payrolls, et sure. cetera. And plus, if you're thinking... You've got money in a savings account at one of these banks, almost any bank. How much were they paying in interest? Almost nothing. Nothing. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you could take that money out and put it into even something safer in treasuries and get a lot higher interest rate. So people were starting to do that too. Oh, okay. Okay. So it was sort of a double whammy. But the point is something breaks and, and you end up with another crisis. Now, this one was very compressed. It happened for un, it was sort of one of those unforeseen circumstances. The Fed needed to try to raise rates to stop the inflation that had kicked in. But they raised them so fast that they accelerated all these paper losses in all these banks. And then when people started to pull their money out to look for money somewhere else and better interest rates, then you had this, this sort of collapse. Now, again, it, it, it'll come out. Every financial crisis does. It's, it's not the end of the world. It's just another example of why these happen in cycles. In the 1980s, over 3,000 savings and loans and thrifts failed when they had to pay interest more than they were collecting on the mortgages that were issued when rates were much lower. When rates went up, money markets went to 20% in the 1980s. And, they, and savings and loans had a lot of mortgages because back then it was the savings and loans that made the mortgages. Mm -hmm. That's what they did. And those were mortgages might have been out there at 5%. And now they're having to pay 20% on their money. Mm. And they, like I said, over 3,000 of them went under throughout the 1980s in that sort of ongoing crisis. Another example um, of how these happen over and over in time, I, I have to chuckle about this. This was a book I bought when it came out in 1978. First edition, Manias, Panics, and Crashes, A History of Financial Crises. That sounds like really um, <laughs> eye-opening reading, I guess, is one way of putting it. Was, it. it was good nighttime reading yeah. when, when you could have a hard time going to sleep, okay? <laughs> Oh, gosh. So no, you never have insomnia with the right finance book that's, next to you. That's the book. Okay, yeah, is, I gotcha. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. This book has just come out in its eighth edition. So obviously, this <laughs> there, there's a need when that yeah, happens. We've had four or five more panics since this one came out. Wow. And so they just keep updating in the new edition. Well, as I said, these things happen over and over. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now, let me give you my top 10 Financial bubbles. Now, I'll, be, I'll keep them brief, but I just want to illustrate that this hasn't something that's just started to happen, right? Uh, have I been alive during all of these 10? No. Okay, I'm thankful no, no. for that part. No, no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> but you've probably heard of many of them. The Dutch tulip bulb craze. No? I don't believe I have. No. no. Oh, well, 1636 is when this happened. Okay. And briefly... Tulip bulbs and the bulb, the colors that they had in these tulips all of a sudden became something that everybody wanted. And so people were spending more and more money to buy these tulip bulbs. And they became an investment vehicle. Are you serious? I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm not. I I'm, need to read about that. I'm blooming not lying about this. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. It really was. People would mortgage their house to buy a tulip bulb. It was just. It had that much equity. Yes, the value everybody wanted, and so what I what I wanted to pay was more, and it got more, and then it got more, and it more, and and as you can imagine, you can't really eat the flowers, and at some point that whole thing just collapsed. But that's probably one of the the number one best examples of a financial bubble that hit in 1636. That's crazy. Next one, let's move into the next century, South Sea Bubble. 1720. 
Now we're starting to explore. We're in the South Sea. We create stock. We bring things back. The people that own it keep pushing the price up. Everybody else wants it. It goes way up. Now it's worth a lot more than anybody wants. And, and, it's, and again, it crashes. Same beer, by the way. You had a Mississippi bu- bubble. Now this one you may not have heard of. All right. 1720, a French scheme engineered by John Law. By the way, you can't make this stuff up. Law is the last name. Is this, okay. is this is too good, right? <laughs> Came up. Again, France still was owning that over in the Mississippi River, and and they started selling property that everybody wanted over in France. Eventually, Law had to had to leave the United that area and go back to Europe and try to seek refuge. But again, they just they get everybody excited about it. They bid up the price. They sell them. Price goes way up, higher than anybody can justify, and then something happens in a break. Stock market bubble. Now we're talking about the Great Depression, 1927 and 1929. People could buy stocks on margin. They only had to put up 10% of the money to buy a stock. And so when it went up some, they'd buy some more stock on margin, 10% off. And then when that went up, holy cow, I can get even more on that. Well, guess what happens when it's only 10%? When, when it starts to fall, they get what are called margin calls. They have to sell something to make up the difference. And they don't have enough equity. And so now all of a sudden it's like, no, no, you don't have enough in the stock. You need to write a check. Well, we all know how that turned out. We know how that turned out. Mm -hmm. Again, huge bubble. I've already mentioned number five, the Mexican, Argentina, Brazil defaults. All right. And I talked about why those loans were actually made. But again, big bubble. The Japanese one I mentioned, that was that's number six. That happened in eighty five to eighty nine. Number seven. I've already talked about that one. Scandinavia. I won't go back and repeat. Number eight, Asian. Real estate bubble, 1992. The one you already addressed that I didn't really touch in the last segment, the internet and the -the over-the-counter bubble, 1995 to 2000. I really lived in that one because I had an internet company in that time frame. And I saw the insanity that was going on about, you know, people that would, that would call you out of the blue to make, can you, are you for sale? Do you want to sell? Here's how much, what do you, and, and none of these companies were making money. It was just an idea. And so if you put .com in the name of your company, you all of a sudden tripled its value, whether you had anything to do with the internet or not. It was just it was just everybody trying to make a quick profit, and the internet was new. And again, it was a bubble that eventually had to break. So we, we had that. And then number 10, the great financial crisis that we had really starting in 2002 with real estate prices in that bubble. Here's the one thing I want you to remember, among others that I'm going to share today is, as you, I know if you're in the car, uh, don't take notes. You can maybe turn on and tape this at some point, right? So you can remember. No, they can go to our website. And, and most it. importantly, go to our website and pull this Absolutely. up, all right? So here it is. History never repeats itself, but people always do. Human nature will, we always get this exuberance. We we just, it, it is, it's human nature. We, we all of a sudden, even though we may think we're long-term thinkers, when everybody in the short term is making a lot of money, we go, wow, I want some of that too. And eventually you get sucked into it. It's, again, it's like a virus. It just spreads. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe you have, you know, natural immunity to where you don't get sucked in early, but eventually, right at the top, <laughs> you jump in. So manias occur 
when there is a loss of connection with rational thought. This leads to the bubble, leads to the panic, leads to the crash. Of course, economic theory assumes people are rational and thus manias will never develop. When we come back from break here, I want to talk about an example from a Nobel Memorial Prize winner, Merton Miller, that I had the pleasure of having in one of my lectures when I was in the doctoral program to talk about why he switched to finance. So we'll be back in just one minute. Let's take a break. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, here on this edition of Bolin's Alley. Just before break, I was talking about an example of, of why economic theory often doesn't really work in practice. And when I was a doctoral student back in the 80s at the University of Iowa, one of my professors there was good friends with Merton Miller, who taught at the University of Chicago. Now, if you're not in finance, Merton Miller may not mean anything to you, but, but he won a Nobel Memorial Prize in 1990 for a lot of the work that he did. Brilliant guy. Passed away, unfortunately, by now. But one of the questions we asked him in our seminar when he came was why, as an economist, why had he switched to finance? And, and, and I think his answer really kind of solidified why I wanted to focus on finance and not in economics. He said, you know, I, wanted, I was getting tired of working on problems that could never possibly happen in the real world. And at least in finance, you have a fighting chance that what you're studying may actually happen the way you study it. That's a good reason. And, and it, the point he was trying to make is that economic theory, the models are such that they assume things that you know aren't true, but you make decisions based as if they were true. Thus, you make an assumption people are always rational, even though in your heart you know they're not. But everything that you model and you write about based and predict on rational behavior. is based on rational behavior, and people become irrational. What happens in these things is groupthink will kick in, right? And you get a herd mentality. And so think of this like a virus. As I've mentioned before, it spreads through society, and even if you have natural immunity, eventually you succumb. One of my best examples I have of this, uh, think back uh, – as a kid, have you ever played musical chairs? Everybody's played musical chairs. Okay. How does musical chairs work? I, I forget. Well, let's say we have a classroom of 10 children. Okay. And the teacher would put the music on. Mm -hmm. And at first, to demonstrate how it works, there would be 10 chairs and 10 children. So a chair for every person. When the music comes on, everybody walks around. When the music turns off, you have to take a chair. That's round one. Everybody's seated. Round two, the teacher made it interesting. She removed a chair. Oh. But there were still 10 children. And so now the music comes back on. Everybody's a little more sensitive and a little more keenly aware of their environment. And they're watching the teacher very closely to see when she was going to stop playing the music because when she stops again, we had to sit down. And someone was not going to have a chair. And they were a loser. And they were the loser. For that round, right? Correct. You mean, and then you did it again? 
Yes. And Ooh. then another chair was removed. So okay. we were creating losers. We were creating losers with that game. There's something not right about that. Yeah. <laughs> but that a good life le- but maybe a good life lesson in there here. There is there. Okay. So so you have to keep dancing while the music's playing. Mm-hmm. Right? In a bubble, when the music stops, you discover all the chairs are gone. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. There are no chairs. There the chairs are gone. It's a clean sweep. All 10 of you are... Level playing field, as we call it. Level playing field. All 10 of you now have no chair. Mm. That's when a bubble breaks. Wow. It's the extreme example of musical chairs. Wow. But you know what? If you are in the investing world, or if you've got sucked in, you can't bring yourself to stop while the music is still playing. Human nature... You love the music. You stay and you dance to the music. It's a positive experience. It's a positive experience. And it's positive reinforcement. Exactly. Exactly. So in the last 400 years, there's been a lot of financial crisis. Starting with the tulip bulb is probably the best documented one. I'm sure there were ones before that, but that's, that's the one we have at least good history on. You'll have some supply of credit. You'll have everybody gets optimistic you have growth in the economy. Maybe it's just local. Usually it's global now. More and more people bought assets with the hope of short-term profits, right? Household wealth goes up. Consumption spending goes up. I'm starting to sound like an economist here. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. All right. But businesses become more optimistic. So they invest more. You get an economic boom. A bubble develops, but you can't sustain it. That's just that's the pattern. So what is new in the last 40 years, we've now had four or maybe five, depending on what happens with this most recent example, of financial crises involving multiple countries every time. And it's reasonable, I think, for us to assume that these waves are somehow related. Historically, because credit has been provided by banks, it's going to be related to banks. And so even though it may not involve a bank in the end, or in the beginning? It originated. That's where it started. Okay. And so I don't want you to think about if there's one now and things sound dire, it's a normal process. It's painful, but it's it's a normal part of the kind of the cleansing cycle that you go through. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, you kind of live with that. Now, what I want to kind of go to at this point, though, is I want to talk about compounding. You've probably heard about compounding interest. Mm-hmm. And compounding is so doggone confounding. Because we hear about what an amazing investor Warren Buffett has been. Yes, I mean, mm-hmm. right? And he's had an impressive average annual return on his investments. There's no denying that. I, I saw reported once, I think it was 22% a year on average. That's that's beyond impressive. That's, I yes, mean, that's like... It is. That's the gold bar. But you, know? but you know what? The main reason he has accumulated as much wealth as he has is due to one phrase, another one, I'd like you to remember. Timing is irrelevant. Time is everything. Let me say that again. I went, we're going we're gonna to break this apart. Timing is irrelevant. When you get in, 
doesn't matter in the bigger scheme of things. How long you stay in, time is everything. everything. Warren Buffett, at least according to everything that he's ever said, started investing when he was 10 years old. And when he was 90, he was worth about $85 billion. Okay? So now, I just mentioned he's earned about 22% compounded, which is phenomenal. However, however, if you or I started investing when we were 25, which is not unreasonable time to start, right? You, if you go to college or you, you've been working and you're now at the – maybe you can start to invest a little. I'm curious about that age because that's been the age for a long time. And the environment has changed oh, dramatically. Yes. It has. So I don't know if I, I mean, I know we're using 25 as a practical number right now. I just would be real, I would be curious to, to have you further that conversation. Well, from what you're going to see here in a minute, I would argue it's way too late to start. Okay. But for this example, I'm going to say you started at 25. You're going to want to retire at 65. And let's just say you could also have earned 22%. Okay. So you're going to be the next Warren Buffett, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so Warren Buffett, $85 billion. How much money will you have if you start investing and you earn 22% a year at the same level he started at, only you start at 25? How much money do you think you'll have at 65? I'm not even going to guess. I just... I. I, I can't do Should that. be close to $85 billion though, right? I mean, right? I mean, you're, you're earning a lot of money and... No? I don't, I don't know if I would agree with that. Oh, you're right. It's $12 million. $12 million. No, not, a, not an untidy sum, but you know what? That's 99% less than Warren Buffett earned at the same rate of return over his life. 99% less money. Hmm. That's a big delta. Yeah, it is a huge delta. I, I love this quote from a, from a book I would, I would recommend that you read. It's a nice, quick read. Very good book. The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, H-O-U-S-E-L. He said this about Warren Buffett. His skill is investing. His secret is time. Mm. Because he did it over 80 years, compounding can confound us in a number of ways. And what you have is he had 80 years of investing and reinvesting. So if you only have 40, it's not that you're going to be poor, but you're not going to mimic the billions. You're not. And so continually investing over a long, being a good steward of your money from whenever you can start doing it, the longer you do it, the better your overall wealth is going to look. We'll come back for our last segment here in just a minute and see if we can break this apart a little bit. We'll be right back. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and this is Bolin's Alley. And we've been talking a lot about financial bubbles and crisis, and I just finished up an example in the last segment talking about Warren Buffett and why great return, but the key to his phenomenal wealth was just that he did it over 80 years rather than 40. And so... Part of what I want to encourage people to do is be a really good steward of what you do. And what I want to kind of switch in this last segment is to think about why we have trouble comprehending growth 
and changes in the world and why we too often depend on history, but things that happen are unprecedented and they tend to happen as extreme events. And you can't really predict an extreme event or it wouldn't be extreme. And innovations don't grow linearly. They happen exponentially. So let me, let me give you an example. This is, this is kind of a fun one. Um, it's a story about hard drives. I used to be a computer geek when they first came out. I was building computers and having all sorts of fun with them. And uh, so this is a story about hard drives and companies that fell behind and how fast they grew. Um, and if you have a computer, you have a hard drive, probably has more storage capacity than you'll ever possibly need. Um, but they're a great example of compounding. And there was a company in the, in the 1980s that a friend of mine was trying to convince me to look into. And he was talking about, I won't go into the nitty gritty, but basically he said, look, they just got this contract. They're going to supply XYZ company all of their this ABC size drives over the next two years. He says, I think this is something you ought to look at, Lyle. It's a great company. Take a look at them. And I felt kind of bad for the guy at the time. I really did. Um, because the size of the hard drive he was talking about was bigger than any hard drive you could have gotten five years earlier. So it sounded like, boy, they're, they're sort of, you know, this is great. They're getting, you know, this big company is going to buy all of their hard drives that, that are this size from this company. The problem is, is that every company that was using hard drives at that point had already moved to larger hard drives. And having the market on this size hard drive was like having buggy whips in 2010, <laughs> assuming it was still going to be all horse-drawn. Oh, boy. So the, the worst thing you could do with that company at that point in time was actually buy stock that company. Sure. Now, it turns out, this is sort of an unfortunate byproduct. This company got stuck making the outdated drives and to try to keep afloat when they shipped all drives out to companies, hoping they would buy a lot, mm -hmm. to try to keep the sales looking good, they literally started to put rocks in the boxes instead of hard drives to make it look what? like they were selling a lot more hard drives in their revenue than they were. So they'd sell a pallet, and in the middle of the pallet, they'd put rocks in the, instead of hard drives. To make it look like they were selling more. Oh my. Yeah. Because guess what? They all of a sudden had something there wasn't any demand for and they were trying to survive and figure, oh, well, somebody in the warehouse, da, 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 da. But that was a bust for that company. Well, from 1950 to 1990, we gained 296 megabytes of storage capacity. Now, don't worry about if you don't know what a megabyte is. You'll get the idea when I give you the next number. From 1990 to today, we have done much better than another 296 megabytes. We have grown 100 million megabytes more. That's exponential. If you were working in the industry in 1950 at IBM, when they made a three and a half megabyte hard drive, three and a half 
Would you honestly have predicted the current level of storage if you were that engineer at IBM? Maybe you were an optimist. You might have predicted a thousand times higher. If you were a dreamer like me, you might even said 10,000 times higher. Ooh. How many of them do you think would have said what it really was? 30 million times larger in my lifetime. Well, at risk of being left out of a job. Yeah. I mean, you just... You, you, your mind, we don't fathom that sort of exponential growth over any significant period of time. Again... What basing, did I say? Basing it on hi historically, though, yes, because right. this is what we've become accustomed to. This is what, this we've, is what seen, we've experienced right? And today. we think linear. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Remember what I said? Timing is irrelevant. Time is, is everything. everything. Mm -hmm. And so even if we think we understand the power of compounding, we still can't go so far into the future to really see the huge impact over time. That's why it's so hard to really accurately predict where technology is going, where businesses are going, where growth is going. I think technology, though, is just, I, I, that's, I, that's just the most amazing of innovations. Oh, it is. I mean, just being a kid and really thinking I would walk around with a, a computer, which I didn't even know really kind of existed at that point in life, and you could talk on it and you could take pictures and you could talk to your son and see his face and he's in Japan and you're in the United States. You, I mean, that is unfathomable. I remember laughing at comics with Dick Tracy who had the, the, watch. the watch, right? And here we are wearing our watches, all of us. So, again, it's just that it's hard, it's hard to actually do this because what really ends up happening is a lot of things in business and investing – are actually driven by what are called tail events. And tail events in human nature are actually much fatter than what we think of should be in what's a normal curve. And, and you know, we've all heard about normal curves and, you know, so many, you know, maybe everybody has it. I, I, I live and breathe this stuff. But again, the idea is, is that if you've got a normal curve, two-thirds of everything that happens happens in a fairly narrow band. Two-thirds? Two-thirds. Okay. 95% happens like in two bands out there. If I go out three different bands, 99% of whatever happens, happens there. All right? Technological innovation, major events, world events that trigger major changes happen out in the tails six and seven and ten deviations away. And they tend to happen more than a normal curve would predict. Those are called fat tail events and it's the fat tail events that really give you all of the technological advances that have all of the trigger points in world politics and economic events it's those little things that you think would never happen that you couldn't predict happening that triggers an event we started talking about cycles of financial bubbles right mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden we're talking about compounding and fat tails What's that all about? Well, I propose that whether we're talking about a financial bubble or a military battle or a technological innovation, the most important event that happens in history are big outliers. Or in what I said earlier, it's a fat tail event. Just a few big events in 
any field that involves people will play a huge role in influencing the outcomes. <clears throat> Many of these historical events that we try to use to help predict what we see today don't work. Why? Well, those events, when they happened, didn't have any precedence. There wasn't any precedence. I can look back now and see it, but guess what? What's happening now is not going to be relevant. Isn't going to be relevant because it doesn't have any precedent. Mm -hmm. COVID is a great example of that. Everybody can say I can predict based on what, well, this is what happened in the 80s, and this is what happened in the 60s, and this is what happened in the 30s, but nothing like what happened with COVID happened in any of those times. Those were all unprecedented events. This is an unprecedented event. So you run the risk of trying to predict things from history and applying them that apply now, and you do so at your own risk. Historians aren't prophets, okay? You can learn from history, but these big events, these fat tail events, these outliers are unprecedented. And even though you know they're going to occur, you don't know when they're going to occur, and you don't know why they occur. So that married with human behavior is where you're going next. Exactly. Okay. So all of that ties in with how we behave as humans. And if I can sum up how I want you to behave as you go through your career and whatever that career is, I'm going to give you a quote from uh, Nassim Taleb, another book, author of a book I'm going to highly recommend, Fooled by Randomness, who's been quoted as saying, you can be risk-loving and yet completely averse to ruin. There's times to take risk, but don't take so much risk that if you're wrong, it, it ruins you. Take smaller risks and manage a cushion. That's the kind of safety. You can't, you can't just hide your head in the sand, but neither do you have to understand that major things are going to happen that you have no control over and that you can't predict. Is that the definition of calculated risk then? That's exactly a calculated risk. Okay. And I hope this has helped you today in thinking about how you think about risk, human behavior, and financial crises. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to see more like this podcast, please go to Boland's Alley at alleninvestments.com. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Investment advisory services offered through Allen & Company of Florida, LLC, Allen & Co., and its affiliate LPL Financial, LLC, LPL, Registered Investment Advisors. Securities offered through LPL, member FINRA, SIPC.